Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and I'm back. I'm back at the front of the episodes doing the introduction. Big thank you to Podcast Mike who did an incredible job doing all the intros when I was uh, very busy. I had a lot going on and uh, we still wanted to get the episodes out weekly, uh, sometimes twice a week, but mostly weekly during that time. And uh, the main reason those episodes came out weekly during that time was Podcast Mike who also stepped in and did the introduction. So if you would like to support Podcast Mike, the best way for you to do that is go to Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash philosophy, and you can sign up there for as little as a dollar a month. But uh, our, look, our subscriptions have gone down a little bit uh, in the last few months, and uh, I understand that. People obviously, you know, have limited things that they can spend their money on, but uh uh, look, to be honest, the, the show does not really make a lot of money. I enjoy doing it very much and it makes enough to keep going and pay James Fosdyke for the original artwork and pay Podcast Mike. But the main uh, source of income it has after, other than a few ads that we get on the show is your support at Patreon. So if you like the show and you would like to see it come out regularly, then uh, patreon.com is uh, patreon.com slash philosophy is the place to go. So, you know... Podcast Mike can be rewarded for all the hard work he does to make sure that this show comes out uh, weekly. And up until Christmas, often it's going to be twice a week because, uh, as I said, I had a whole bunch of things on. And so we tried to bank a whole bunch of episodes. And it just meant that, um, you know, obviously we couldn't mix up the variety of guests in the same way as we normally would just because some people weren't available to, you know, record when I needed to record. So, up until Christmas, basically, we've got heaps of episodes, like a bunch of old ones that have been like sitting around for a few months that I really just want to get out there as soon as possible, and then a bunch of new episodes coming up to Christmas as well. So there's so much content. So if you're enjoying it and you're enjoying what comes out in the next couple of months, then the best place to go to support that is patreon.com slash philosophy. There you go. That's me plugging the Patreon page. Look, we went down like a thousand bucks, so I thought I should <laughs> probably give it a proper plug. Um, but yeah, we are very grateful for everybody who supports the show. And of course, if you want to send me a message about guests or anything like that, then the best place to do that is the uh, Patreon page. And I'll uh, try to respond to everybody's messages that are there. Um, today's episode is with Kaz Cook. Kaz Cook is just amazing. You, you probably know who Kaz Cook is already, right? Like she's an incredible author, cartoonist, comedian, I would say. Maybe she wouldn't say, but I, I would definitely say. Um, radio broadcaster, like television presenter, like she's done, she's done it all. And everything that she does is absolutely amazing. And she's just one of those people that I don't know that well. I know, you know, well enough to say g'day and exchange some pleasantries, but she's one of those people that you just, every time you spend some time with her, you feel like you know her very well. And um, it was great to have this chat with her for the podcast. So I hope you're really going to enjoy it. Uh, other plugs. I have some other shows uh, on the TOFOP network, T-O-F-O-P. Uh, there is an original show that Charlie Clawson and I have been doing for 11 or 12 years now, which is a com comedy conversation between two old friends. It is called TOFOP, and you can just jump in at a, a recent episode to have a listen to that. And there is a spin-off of that show called FOFOP, where Charlie and I take alternate weeks to um, record a podcast with somebody else within that uh, TOFOP universe. Uh, Justin Hamilton has been my regular guest for about uh, six or seven episodes in a row. So if you want to hear me talking to Justin Hamilton about all things life and Ted Lasso, then the place to find that is uh, Fofop. So uh, Tofop and Fofop. We also have a footy podcast, an AFL adjacent footy podcast called uh, Two Guys, 
one cup um all old episodes of that are up in the feed at the moment but we're not making new episodes because we're having a little break in the off season and also my team lost the grand final so i'm not really in the mood to talk about football yet we'll get there it will be fine but anyway i wanted to say i hope you're all doing very well thank you for all the incredible messages i get about all the episodes that go up on the philosophy feed i know i haven't been very active responding to anybody because as I mentioned, there's been some other shit going on, but uh, I'm glad to be back. I'm glad to be back in this world. Um, oh, I have a TV show. It's called Gruen. Uh, you can watch that on ABC iView or Wednesday nights, 8.30 on the ABC. And of course, I had a show called Question Everything, which is still available on ABC iView if you want to check some of those episodes out as well. So um, I hope you enjoyed this today with Kaz Cook. She has a new book. It's called You're Doing It Wrong, A History of Bad and Bonkers advice to women and we get into some of that in this episode so uh check out kaz's book and i hope you enjoy this chat Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson. From the title of the podcast, this is how the show starts. And it's not a surprise to check out today's guest, which makes this question a little easier to ask. Who are you? My name is Kaz Cook. Do you need any further details on that matter or will I just say my name? Well, I mean, again, I, you know what? I'm more interested in how people answer than what they say. That's, that is the truth of it. If I'm going to be completely honest with you and the audience, I like to see what people say when I ask them who they are. Because really, what this show is about at its heart is just asking people, who are you? Like, how do you define yourself? So, like, if I ask you who you are, then who are you? I feel like I've fallen at the first hurdle. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's good. I, I like that it gives me some time to explain it to you and also to the audience. Because... You know, like, let's just cut through the bullshit. You know what I'm looking for. I want to know who you are. So how do you define yourself, Kaz Cook? I like to define myself as a reporter and a cartoonist, but I, in some ways I'm no longer either of those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that way that I think you sort of can sometimes define yourself as how you launched yourself into the adult world. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose it's... Um, if I don't want people to ask any more questions, I tell them I'm a typist because that <laughs> shut them up. But I guess I'm an author um, and kind of a cartoonist uh, and a mum. And those are probably the things that define me the most. But it's interesting, isn't it? You know, like you have shorthand versions or, you know, slightly deceitful versions of, of who you are depending on... Because if I say to someone I'm an author... I feel like that's less wanky than saying I'm a writer. But then someone told me off once and said I had to say I'm a writer. So, uh, frankly, I'm just bamboozled by your question and I don't know what to do now. People have a lot of demands about what you should and shouldn't say. I was speaking to a young comedian uh, just recently. In fact, yesterday, I think it might have been. And he was telling me proudly that he'd finally started admitting to people that he's a comedian. And for him, it was a very big moment in his life. He's like, you know, if someone asks me what I do now, I will tell them I'm a comedian. And I said, well, there's going to be another phase of your career where you're comfortable enough that you are a comedian that the last thing you will ever do is tell a stranger what you do for a job. Like there'll be a point where you'll make up anything that you do rather than get into to the conversation about being a comedian. So I think sometimes it would depend who's asking you the question. 
to how you might answer that question. Except if someone's asking, then they're, you know, odds on to be a stranger. Mm. And then the second question to to a writer or an author is unanswerable. Yeah. Have you, have you written anything that I've read? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, you're the only person who could answer that, my friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I think I used to get off a little bit on saying I was a reporter. I thought that uh, was a really groovy job to have. And I got that job straight out of school. I was 17 when I got a job as a baby reporter. I feel like you and I might have quite a few things in common, Will, actually, um, because of our background and the way we sort of sidled sideways into what we ended up doing i think we both came from being baby journalists baby reporters so tell me okay so where were you where did you grow up the suburbs of melbourne but my mum was a country girl so i'm one generation off uh, my my granddad was a shearer and um and my mum came to the city from the country and did that thing that lots of girl lots of young girls did then which is sort of moved to a boarding house you know, where they got sexually harassed in the laundry by the landlord's husband. Not that that would have happened to my mum, but, you know, um, that's the kind of experience. And then the great sort of shift of, of a lot of people from the country into the suburbs. So I'm a suburban then kind of inner city girl and and grew up just, you know, people will say that thing where they go, um, I, ha- I had a house full of books. Mm-hmm. There were no books in my house. There might have been a copy of... Uh, you know, a racy paperback um, propping up a sash window. But I I got my love of books from the library and you were allowed to borrow two books a week. And I used to sit in the back of my mum's Volkswagen on the way home and have read the two picture books on the way home and be ready for another one. Uh, I remember finding out a, a few years ago that kids were allowed to take a borrow up to 10 books and it just blew my mind. The libraries are like, please take books, please, 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 anything you want, get it back. And then I got a job when I was um, 15 at a secondhand comedy bookshop, which was opposite the railway station in Sandringham and run by Mm -hmm. this guy called Peter Crofts who ran, um, I don't know, I I never went because I was a word girl, not a performance girl, but he would... But it was a comedy course, right? He had a Crofts Humiversity or something like that. It was like it had some... It had some funny comedy pun name. I can't remember if it was Humiversity. But no, I'm sure that's exactly right. I'm sure Humiversity. Or the School of Hard Knock Knocks. Is it? No, that's someone else maybe. <laughs> but there's there's a few and they always have a bit of a play on a comedy name. Yeah, so that's a long time ago, right? That's the late 70s. And um, so I went there and, uh, and worked part-time in the bookshop when I was still at school. And so I read... I, I found out about cartoons and I found out about funny satirical books, almost all English, right? Because in those days, if you went to the, I got my books from the op shop or then from this place and boy, did I read a lot of Enid Blyton when I was little, like, you know, there's a, there's a, a cornucopia of, of young adult and other books for, for people now. But in those days, um, yes. Yeah, so I saw the, in particular, the cartoons uh, drawn by Ronald Searle, who did, um, who had schoolgirls in his cartoons called the Girls of St Trinians, which were violent, oh, out of control schoolgirls in the English hmm. tradition. And it's you know, there's a couple of films that have been made, but 
it was the first time I'd seen girls in cartoons and the first time I went, oh, you can make a living out of writing. Mm. So, and then I applied to get a, a cadetship at the Age newspaper. God knows why I thought that was, it was sort of like the, the boldness of youth and it, and accidentally said something in an interview which made me sound more interesting than I was. So I got through to the third interview, which was with the actual editor at the time. And this sounds like it's not true, but it was. So it was 11 o'clock in the morning and I'm, I'm like this 17-year-old with, I, and I'm not making this up, I had two plaits on the top of my head like I was some kind of weird Heidi. And, you know, very young and naive, but but walked into this interview 11 o'clock in the morning and he was drinking a very large whiskey and smoking Mm. uh, a Winnie Blue and had an ashtray full of butts. And I looked at the, and he sort of lifted his drink a little bit as I came in the door. And I looked at him and I said, and I'm sure it's because I'd been reading lots of sassy um, crime novels with female heroines at the bookshop. I looked at his drink and I said, "Is that cold tea, or are you just trying to impress me?" And oh my God. he laughed. Look at you! I know, and he laughed, and I never saw him laugh again for seven years. <laughs> so I was very lucky and slid on through. And by the and then I had my eighteenth birthday, and a month later I started as a a baby reporter, and I stayed there. For about seven years and then... Okay, can we, before we get to that, I just want to circle back on something that you mentioned. So the boldness of youth. I, 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 was, I'm just, I was ruminating on this the other day because I was talking to somebody and I said, if I had to start being a stand-up comedian now, there's no way I'd do it because I know all the things that could go wrong and how risky a profession it is and how competitive it is and how many people, like how hard it would be. I know all the things that are going to be hard about it now, but... When I decided that I was going to be a stand-up comedian, I didn't know all those things. You know, the barrier to entry was actually much lower because I was just this naive kid who thought, you know, they knew enough. So do do you have any reflections on that? Like, is there a bit of like the idea of being young and being bold? Do you think that you would make the same bold decisions you made as a 15-year-old now? I hope that I would be way bolshier. Now, even the line of my cartoons mm. started off spindly and really skinny, and now it's yeah. it's quite bold, and the line is much thicker. Um, Good, I like this. Good. I think uh, my whole many of the books I wrote from the very beginning. The first book I wrote when I was twenty four was I wrote because I didn't know something. So I all of my mm. my books almost come from the position I think journalism gives you courage because you it even when you're shy you're, you're forced to ring someone up and go hello I, I'm this person from the age and ask basically impertinent questions of people that you would never like adults <laughs> um, is how it seemed to me that I was still a kid and they were adults but there was this it, but being a reporter gives you a license. And I can remember asking a question when I was probably 26 or 27 at a press conference in Sydney, where I was a very junior person in the age office. And I, I, they read the, it was a, they read a press release out and then asked for questions. 
And I thought, oh, God, I don't understand something in that press release and put my hand up and said, I'm so sorry, I don't understand what, if that figure is that much, then how come this other figure is less? And people at the other journalists at the press conference laughed at me and I knew that I was humiliated and I was the youngest one there and I was wearing a tiger print dress and stockings that were red on one leg and black on the other. And But I thought, I'm too scared to go back to the office if I don't understand this. And the guy who was running the press conference said, oh, yeah, sorry, that's a mistake, actually. That doesn't make sense. Yeah. And I mean, there are many occasions on which I was humiliated and I did, there wasn't a quiet triumph. But, but I guess what I'm saying is reporting makes you more scared that you're going to libel someone and get sacked than it does of asking an impertinent question or admitting that you don't know something. So a lot of my books are written because I don't know about that thing and I've got to go and find out about it so I can tell the reader as well. It's not from... You know, sometimes people might call me, um, not often, but, you know, people might say, you know, I'm a parenting expert or something like that has happened in the past. And I have to stop them and say, oh, no, 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 this is because of I write what I do because of ignorance. I go to the people who know stuff and interpret it. Um, and hopefully I've developed over the years a sense of uh, community and trust with with readers uh, about that. Okay. So I get that. Like, I, I really relate to that, to be honest, because I think with Gruen, the mistake that sometimes people make is they'll try to book me as an advertising expert, like on yeah. something, you know, something will come out and they'll want my opinion as an advertising expert. And I always say to them, I said, like, my whole role on that program is not to be the expert. I'm the person who's going in search of these answers on your behalf. You know, that thing that you've been asking when you watch the show, that ad at home, and you think, oh, I wonder what that's about or why they're doing this or why I'm seeing so many of those. It's kind of my job to go and ask those questions in a clever way that hopefully gives you the answers that you need. But I am not no, an expert and, in and that in fact, thing at all. I think, and I bet this is the same for you, you've got to be actually um, genuinely curious and I, I think that was my, um, that's my great skill, is to be genuinely really mm. curious about why and how and, you know, did that happen? And um, so, yeah, I mean, I've sort of, that's my, that's my straight through line and I've kind of wobbled on either side of that path, but that's... The common thing, like wanting to know more. Like I, I, I get this a lot. I understand this, but I want to understand where it comes from. Do you remember, was this always part of your DNA? Were you by nature just, I mean, it seems to me when you tell this story of this girl going to the library and reading both of the books by the time she's home in the car, that probably is an early foreteller of, you know, a sense of curiosity about other worlds and other stories and what else was out there. But was that a defining character of you as a child? Like would have other people said, oh, Kaz, she's like really curious? Oh, yeah. Like, very much so, and, uh, you know, I think I didn't get a lot of, you know, I really love my parents, but I had a very normal suburban upbringing and you don't get told a lot of stuff and you don't know how the big world works. And uh, like most people, I was brought up in a family which didn't say, okay, this is, if you want an advantage in life, this is, this. these are the hints and um and here's a little package of information that's going to make things easier or um, here are the privileges that you've got that you don't even know about. Um, like I remember one of the reasons I applied for a job at a newspaper 
when I was 17 in my last, in the year 12, is because I didn't know I could go to university. My family didn't have, I had one cousin who'd just gone to university and was the first in the family. I didn't know that you could go to university if you didn't have money. My family didn't know you could apply for grants or anything. Um, so I think I was, a, and I think to some extent still am in, in lots of areas, still kind of naive about lots of things and still curious about lots of things. That is, uh, sorry, just what you've touched on there, though, is such a great example of just like subtle privileges that people don't take into, because I was the first kid in my family to go to university. In fact, the first kid in my family to finish high school, I believe, but certainly the first kid in my family to um, go to university. And so I didn't have anyone to talk to about what it was going to be like or what the workarounds might be or what you might be eligible for. Like I was lucky I got into a university course where I could, you know, journalism, it's like low contact hours. So I had a you know, pretty much full-time job as well as going to university and was able to absolutely, you know, do it and afford it and all those sort of things, pay my hex off and all those, you know, things. But but no one told me how it was going to be. Like, I just remember just th feeling like the biggest idiot all the time because I just did not know how anything was meant to work. Yeah. No, well, that's my whole career, Will. Mm. That's <laughs> I didn't know how pregnancy would work. I didn't know how safe sex would work. I didn't know how to be a person in the world. I, I remember going out to dinner with people in the first couple of weeks when I was a reporter and I'd never been out to dinner before. Like my family had gotten takeaway very rarely. Um, and I think we'd been to the Swagman restaurant, which I believe mm. was a kind of an all you can eat. Yeah. Buffet. Very, very, very famous buffet. Might've burnt down at some stage. I think the Swagman. Mm. Uh, anyway, so we went to a restaurant and I looked at the menu and I did not know what would happen. I did not know mm. how we would make the order. I didn't know how we would pay the bill. I didn't know most of the food on the restaurant uh, in the restaurant. I think it was a pretty straightforward, cheap Italian restaurant in Ligon Street. So that's that was kind of the level of ignorance of the world that I was coming from. And yeah, that's, it feels like a long time ago, but it feels like I am the same person underneath. So how much of that is, like, I mean, because obviously we've talked about the positive bit, which is like you're a curious person. So, you know, you're just being thrown in the deep end in a lot of ways, which is suddenly you've got a whole lot to learn, but you're in the business of being able to learn stuff. So let's go. But is there a part of you that is also feeling like an imposter, like, you know, is feeling scared or are you just excited by the opportunity? I think the, the fear of getting things wrong, the fear of missing a deadline and the anxiety of knowing that the stakes were felt really high um, ingrained in me a sense of really unhelpful being anxious all the time about work. I think in that way that probably brain patterns are set early, I think the way I learned to work was um, and we weren't given much training at all. We just did have to learn on the job to the extent where, for example, I would I turned up to an interview with someone once and he could tell from the look on my face and he was a famous clarinetist and he said, you don't know who I am. If, if there is such so a thing. <laughs> no one does, mate. You're a famous clarinetist. Unless you're Kenny G, then we don't know who you are. And he was very kind and said, I'll explain to you who I am. Um, but but I was always scared that I was going to get something wrong. I mean, you know, I was going off and doing stuff like reporting the stock market 
And I didn't know what it was. And I remember in 1987, when the stock market crashed, I was on the finance desk, but it really taught me something because all these, all the columnists and the head of the finance section were walking around going, oh my God, we didn't see that coming. What just happened? And I thought, oh, you didn't know either. And neither did all the rich people, the stockbrokers that I see when I go down every afternoon there. I mean, what one of, one of the great lies told in modern society is that people in the stock market know what they're doing. I mean, the whole thing is, you know, I mean, you can know how to manipulate it, but I'm not sure that anyone knows how to predict it. I, it was such a huge lesson for me. I had presumed that rich people must be smart in some way because they must have been smart to get there or smart to hold on to it. And then I realised, oh, no, it's all just people. Yeah, and, that's just a lie that we're constantly told so rich people can stay rich. Yeah, and, and I think, um, which goes back to the idea of luck, right, because I knew I was really lucky to get the job, but I also did, I think I did... Um, I was so excited to write a book. So that was the book stuff somehow was felt much more pure joy and excitement, but the reporting did, did teach my brain to, to get nervous and, and to be anxious if I was going to miss a deadline or something like that. So I think, I wish that hadn't happened. I wish that I could be laid back, but then maybe you can't do both, um, Maybe you don't. Yeah. Well, that's certainly what your brain will tell you over and over for decades <laughs> so, yeah. so that you don't stop doing it. Uh, what was the first book? Like, was it, at, can I ask, I mean, this you know, is just maybe only of interest to me, but did you write the book and then sell it or did you sell the book and then write it? Well, this is part of the luck thing that I was in the 80s, which was kind of like a window that people had opened up a little window and said, some of you women can come through here. Mm. And we scrambled through and they slammed it down. But um, I was doing a cartoon for the age and I invented this little character called Hermione the Modern Girl. And um, and it was it ran sort of as a funny little strip in the Friday section. And I took um, I took a collection of those cartoons to um, and here's something that doesn't exist anymore, including a very famous clarinetist, uh, a feminist publisher in Fitzroy, <laughs> and said, hey, can I, because I had these cartoonists from America that I loved and I'd seen their books, and I said, could I possibly, and again, don't know where I got the boldness, can't remember who suggested them or, and they said, well, if we sell a cart, if we do a cartoon book, it probably won't sell but why don't you write some words to go around the drawings? So I wrote a thing called um, The Modern Girl's Guide to Everything, which, um, and I was very uh, inspired and I tried to have a different voice but I, and not rip it off, but I was very um, inspired and encouraged by, and I loved a book called Sex Tips for Girls, which wasn't actually Sex Tips for Girls, but it was funny, satirical, modern, stuff about what it was like to be a young woman by uh, an American author called Cynthia Heimel. And so that was one thing that I learned accidentally and really early that I might not have a uni degree or, um, or a great expertise in anything, but I was curious and I had a voice. So I had, and, and the age then gave me a, a problem column. So I wrote a column called Keep Yourself Nice. And readers loved to engage with it and would write in a similar style and like muck around with you, you know, like, 
Um, to the point where an editor called me in and said, oh, this column is incredibly popular, like in surveys. It's, and he said, so, look, if you need any help making up the letters. And I went, sorry? And he went, well, you know, if you need anyone else to help you make up the letters. And I went, mate, they're real letters. And he, he, he found that he was shocked because, the, <laughs> because to them the newspaper was sort of telling people what to do and they hadn't seen it as a relationship in a way between and that was I love that that was that was fun and so and so then I was away and my second book was and, and luckily newspapers at that moment realized that the future of media was in a conversation and seized on that moment and now still as powerful in the media as they ever were uh, they were <laughs> I mean you know and that was the Saturday paper which was held up by several kilos of classified ads that they explained would always be there and always, always. fund uh, newspapers yeah. and, and independent. This will be fine, guys. We don't have to do anything about this model. Yeah. It is uh, nailed in and everything is working perfectly. Yeah. Um, okay, so curiosity gets you to the first book. The first book is, like, quite successful, right? Like, it actually... In a, li- in does... a little world, you know. Yes, but in its own world, successful enough that, like, you know, when you get want to write another book, someone's going to let you write another book. Well, yeah, and then, so... And I might have gone off in any different direction, but it was the centre of the AIDS pandemic. It was about 1986. And so my second book was The Modern Girl's Guide to Safe Sex because I felt like I needed to tell people stuff, you know. And there were male commentators saying to young men, don't wear condoms, you're straight, you'll never get AIDS. And so I was saying to girls, well, here's all this other stuff you can get and, you know, it's important for you to... Anyway, I look back now and I'm so glad I got those choices. And that, and then the really big book was the one after, which was called Real Gorgeous, and that was about body image. And boy, did that strike. That was the big bestseller that made, made me a, a name that was good enough to continue as a, as a writer. And it was because there'd been kind of serious uh very straight uh, books like Naomi Wolf and um, Susan Faludi's books about feminism. Mm -hmm. But because I have a very keen sense of the ridiculous and I like writing in a friendly voice and I did cartoons, it was just a very different vibe, right, to have a book that had cartoons and, and really and was quite irreverent and... I guess, again, it was that cheekiness that was still working for me. Well, because one of the things that, like, you know, and again, this I'm, I don't put the blame of this at feminism. I put the blame of this often at, you know, the misogyny against fed feminism, which tries to you know, portray it as being humorless. But one of the great, you know, I always, have always thought, you know, one of the great acts of feminism is, you know, women being funny and it's why it was fought so hard against by people who just didn't believe that women had a role in being funny. Like that's been in my lifetime, in my generation, you know, still, I mean, it's still now. I mean, you can't, like when we're recording this, there is a massive debate at the moment between two of the world's greatest comedians. And I actually not even a debate, like that's the wrong way to phrase it. But Hannah Gadsby and Dave Chappelle are in some shit and you can look it up and see what all that's about. But yeah, but what Dave Chappelle said Yes. is that Hannah isn't funny. Isn't which I funny. think which I think a lot of men a lot of men do think women aren't funny. Mm. 
Well, and even if, if if Dave Chappelle thinks it or doesn't think it or can name women that he thinks are funny or whatever, here's, here's what I would say, is that he knows when he says that, that he is unleashing, yeah. giving permission to an army of people who may not have, you know, the same thoughts as Dave Chappelle has or thought about things or have nuanced thoughts on the top or any of those things, if you wanted to give him credit that he probably doesn't even deserve in this conversation. But the fact that you throw it out there and then say, you know, like, I mean, today I've been, my feed's been full of memes of people posting pictures of other people who aren't Hannah Gadsby in a mocking way about Hannah Gadsby and her not being funny. That is all because Dave Chappelle said, you have my permission to to do this. And so much of it has nothing to do with her being funny. It has all to do with her being a woman and a woman who speaks out and all these sort of things. It is, it's not about, and this is why it's so top of mind for me that like being funny as a woman is such a, you know, huge thing that men, you know, certain, certain type of men just don't like to exist, but women are yeah. funny and you were being funny. And they, I think there are a lot of men who are, are frightened of being laughed at by women who consider women being funny an attack in some way. It's extremely, I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right. The Chappelle stuff and all of that stuff. And Christopher Hitchens, the, mm. the social commentator, did it years right. ago. It's, it's, a, it's a weapon used to keep women quiet. And my latest book, there's a whole chapter on the history of women being told to be meek, be quiet, and literally not to laugh. Women mm. and... and and not to gossip. So women weren't allowed to get, gather and talk because the men were, and they called it gossip, not networking, because men were afraid that when they saw women laughing, that they were laughing at their husbands. All of this is documented and hilarious and infuriating and ridiculous. And it's, and in, in doing that book and hearing what you're saying there, it's just, it's been going on since the 12th century clergy, and it's still going on now. And I have to say, um, I love so many things about Hannah Gadsby, but one of them is that she's just, she's brave and is just not going to take any of that shit. But it, it's, but it is so unfair for her that, yeah, she's being put in the firing line um, be, because she is an icon and a leader in in being brave and speaking about things that people don't necessarily think you should talk about. I can't remember how we started that conversation, Will. Because Will. you were talking about uh, feminism doing your like version of feminism, which was with a sense of humour, you know, with the cartoons, written in a different way to what Susan Faludi might have been writing or what Naomi Wolf might have been writing and how I imagine that for a lot of women that was really compelling because women had been so disenfranchised from being able to be comedic about things that I imagine that, you know, you writing in that way must have been, that you must have got some genuine connections from people by approaching it in that manner. And it's really interesting to hear the people who fundamentally misunderstand that. Like I'm often asked, did you choose to sugarcoat the pill of information with humour? You know, are you packaging up stuff that you want to be propaganda or that you want to be informative and and using uh, being funny as a a tool and it's it has never been that for me it's it's all in it together for me I have a sense of the ridiculous I have a very short attention span um, 
I see the ridiculous in things all the time in the way comedians do, in the way funny writers do. I can remember when I had more time to do cartooning, I would look at something or hear something and I'd know whether that was going to be a paragraph or a cartoon. It just, I just knew. Um, and it, when it wasn't about how am I going to get my message across better, it was what's funnier. Um, so I knew that I was talking about stuff that was important. I knew I had to be careful. You can't talk about a sexual health pandemic that's killing people without, but you have to be careful about how you do jokes on how you do. Same thing with my book about pregnancy that's been reprinted for 20 years, right? You have to, it is, if there's a, you know, there's a, there's a couple of skills involved, but one of them is tone um, and knowing when you can actually really be funny or, um, but I loved it, right? I had such fun writing that book and being rude to power, writing it down and snickering to myself and doing the <laughs> cartoons. And that's still the very happiest place of writing. And then I, so then I got into this thing of writing a, a book about pregnancy, a book about um, what to do with babies and toddlers, and then a book for uh, teenage girls called Girl Stuff about everything from first periods to confidence and optimism and um, what to do about mean friends and all of that stuff. And I've just, and then I wrote a novel and I loved that so much, but it didn't sell as well. Um, <laughs> so, but I really love doing the historical research for it. And so what I've, what I've done in the latest book is, is research the history of, of bad and stupid advice to women and had a lot of fun with that. And I am off the chain. I'm now writing in a voice that is, so much more I'm just I just have so much more freedom in this book to say extraordinarily rude things about famous philosophers and to be angry as well as finding something funny and and I went in search of like um there's there's nearly 300 illustrations in this book from old feminist posters to crazy corsets and medical uh, devices that so for me now I can take any amount of research in a public library. I just love doing that kind of stuff so much. So I hope that I can do more of this in, in the future because I'm really glad about the medical psychological work that I've done. But, gee, it was it was fun to get back to that, you know, really letting rip. Um, okay. So because I, I get that, like it gives you a different permission. It's a little bit removed, but you can still be very current in your observations about things. Like I, I, I understand why comedically it's a, it's a better area. One of the questions I'd love to ask on this show, normally I ask it at the end, but like it's kind of come up now. So I'm just going to ask it now, which is, do you have a best bit of advice or worst piece of advice that you've ever got in your life? I accept either, but I always prefer, is there a terrible piece of advice that you remember that, you know, you thought at the time was true or you were told at the time was absolutely the rule and you've come to realize later was absolutely full of shit, but it can be a good piece of advice or it can be a bad historical piece of advice from the book. If you want to like, you know, go <laughs> interpret it that way. It's 300 pages of bash. Yeah. Um, Uh, I, I think it's um, there are lots of very funny quotes in, in the book from those sort of philosophers and authors saying things like, um, you know, exactly the right shape to be, which includes measurements. Um, oh, yeah. So there's any amount of that. But for me, I think that it's like an overarching uh, piece of advice that women are given, which is that, um, and that, hence the title of the book in the end, you're doing it wrong. 
that women are told you're the wrong shape, you're you're too loud. Um, if you if you work, uh, you're selfish. If you stay home, you're stupid. Every single thing women are told is um, that they're not good enough. And I think it's that overarching thing of girls and women being told as they grow up, you know, it's it's not that you're a, a beautiful flower ready to bloom. It's, it's like you're a bud that we're going to crush. And so I, I, I felt, and I have felt all of those things about, you know, imposter syndrome, what I look like, uh, all of, you know, motherhood, all of that stuff my whole life. And part of the reason of wanting to write this book was sort of wanting to get to little me at 17, the other me's who are 17 or 18 or 22 or 25, and they don't know that all this is going to come at them like a fire hose through their whole life. So if they can be armed against it early, then they can kind of dodge out of the way of it a bit. The fire hose is still going to go because people are trying to sell us stuff, shut us up, sell more, um, you know, Netflix downloads for their show. So for me, that thing that women have always been told that you're not good enough and anything. And I, I had a joke once years ago, which was if you're a woman, your body shape is wrong. And there would always be a beat. And then all the women would get it. And the men would be trying to work out the grammar of it, you know, because they just hadn't had that. It's like, because Denise Scott walked on stage. I remember, I don't know what show it was. But I remember Scotty walking on stage kind of slowly, started the show, getting to the mic, pause. And she went, I am so tired. <laughs> every woman in the audience absolutely fell on the floor laughing. And the, and the few men uh, were just looking very, very confused. And um, God, that makes me laugh. She, uh, yeah. So I guess it's that, that women, it doesn't matter what girls and women do, they're still going to be told by somebody that they're doing it wrong. Um over and over again. How did, did you personally, because, I mean, there would have been a million times that you've been told that you were doing it wrong. Like, you know, this doesn't come along without, like, personal experience of this. How When somebody's told you that you're doing it the wrong way, like, how do you normally take that on board? Like, is there, like, does it slide off you because you know what you're looking for now or does it still affect you or, like, I don't know. Like, I'm, It does I, now. I mean, I'm trying to think of a few, like, I, you know, I remember being with a really bad boyfriend once and that I wasn't with for very long, but we were at the pub and he introduced me to a friend of his that I'd never met and his friend said, oh, you're not as ugly as I thought you'd be. Oh, boy. And I remember just look, looking. I mean, right, there's a million things in your life, right, that's that French phrase, the esprit d'escalier, which is the spirit that reaches you on the staircase, which is about when you're leaving and walking down the stairs, what's the brilliant thing that you think of that you could have said? The worst part of that, and that's now, now there's a name for it. It's called negging, and I've talked yep. about it in the book, and there's, you know, there's stuff online endlessly about it. Yeah. And that's good because other women are going to know that that's a thing. But my stupid boyfriend at the time said to me, oh, it's a compliment. <laughs> it's a compliment that you're not as ugly as you thought you'd be. Well, and I think that kind of stuff. And I can remember a guy <laughs> in a workplace making all these dirty jokes and vulgar sort of jokes, not kind of at me, but 
but in front of me, like when I was alone with him or even if we were standing in the middle of an office and people wouldn't have known what he was saying. And he wasn't propositioning me, but he was saying stuff that would make anybody uncomfortable. And he was probably 20 years older than me. And finally, and I was, I was very junior, and finally I said, I don't want you to say sexual things in front of me anymore. I don't want to hear it. And he, we had been friends and work co-workers for three years and his whole face changed and became ugly with anger. And he said, why would I bother talking to you if I can't say whatever I want? And I was so shaken by that and walked away from it and thought about it for years. And it was so disappointing and it made me so sad. I didn't say anything at the time. So what I would say about all of that is I totally look up to and admire the women who in the moment say, why don't you go and get fucked or whatever they say. I also totally understand people who haven't had that moment on the staircase yet of what they do want to say. You can be so shocked you don't know what to do. And that's why we need policies about all of this stuff that politicians are refusing to do in, in Parliament House of all places. You know, those policies and, and, and pathways for women to, to be able to use their voice in a whole lot of different ways. I mean, recently, for example, just on that subject to tie a bow on it, the only reason the High Court investigated um, the um, propriety of behaviour of a previous chief judge was because the chief judge now is a woman and so certain complaints and stories got finally got investigated and finally there will be a process of what people can do with that but for years and there's stuff in, in I was when I was doing the research and I think this still happens women are told for example if they're actually assaulted if uh, you should move out of the way quietly over and over again, right? And including from a moving car was my favourite one. <laughs> that you, you could pop, pop yourself out of a moving car just to avoid that. So, yeah. Okay. So when you look at the world, I'm always interested in like how you feel about the world that we live in right now. Because like there's arguments that I absolutely understand on an intellectual level that we've never lived in a better time. Apart from like say talk, talk about the... The big, un- the big, huge issues like like climate change, you know, these sort of future of the planet things. But on a day to day level, you know, the levels of you know, like poverty, the levels of homelessness, these sort of things, like you know, people's income, you know, technology, medical attention, all these sort of things. Like you could make an argument that things are going great, but it doesn't really feel like things are going great. And particularly when you're in the midst of all this. I don't know, like the pandemic, but talking about these issues that you feel like, are we ever going to get our shit together when it comes to, you know, people being equal? Like, you know what I mean? Like people having the same opportunities. It feels sometimes incredibly dispiriting. Where do, where do you, when you get out of bed or from day to day, what's your attitude? Are we like, do you feel optimistic about the human race or what's going on? Please help me, Cass. <laughs> I feel like the thing that I learned that makes me feel better over my whole life yeah. is I feel like it's important not to judge only by achievements. You have to judge by whether you're still in the fight and who's with you. Mm-hmm. Like I thought in the 80s that feminism, that, that as soon as men were told, look, look how unfair this is, yeah. they'd go, oh, I'm so sorry. I beg your pardon. Let yeah. me 
let me help you fix that. That doesn't happen. That doesn't happen in with issues of race, but it's better now. I think it's, it, and one of the main reasons it's better now is because women have the voice and uh, Indigenous people and African-American people uh, have a voice that they didn't have before. Um, I still think, you know, it's, it's pretty difficult if you were born way up high somewhere in Nepal or, you know, Uganda, but there are people trying to help there too, right? Many more people than we're ever trying to help before. Um, so that's the thing I think we can be optimistic about, that we can reach people who are trying to do stuff for the better can reach each other um, and band together. Of course, it means <laughs> the weird anti-vaxxers can <laughs> find each other too. Um, but that that does make me feel really optimistic. I think my, my daughter's now 24. I think her generation is so much better at sexual politics, gender identity, seeing stuff, calling it out, that gives me a lot of hope. I think young women in particular have been told that they're trivial forever. And I, I just wonder if that's ever been true. Um, I think young people, um, well, hopefully they'll save us because we've given up, haven't we? I can see that look <laughs> on your face. I don't um, know if I've given up, Kaz. I'm no. just, <laughs> I'm terrified. I don't know what to do. I was like, I was a bit like you. I was thought, it, I used to be one of those people who just thought if, and I guess that's part of like the idea behind journalism, isn't it? The appeal or perhaps the lie of journalism is that if everybody just gets good information, then, you know, the world will be a better place. Oh, but yeah. we've kind of seen that that doesn't really, <laughs> doesn't yeah, really pan out. Mind. Yeah. I mean, the, one of the things I think that's interesting about wanting to go into journalism or show business as a job is that it actually gave you a bridge to other places, other classes of people and other um, inf information. Um, oh, yeah, look, I am really, you know, I feel shocked at how bad the standard of journalism is now. Not that I was necessarily part of a golden era or anything because um, I wasn't really that kind of journalist, but I think it helps to think of it as being you're in an ongoing fight and sometimes that's all you can control right? Like sometimes you, all your philosophy can be is um, the only thing you can control in a pandemic and, you know, the, and, and tumultuous life events is your own conduct. And that's a very old fashioned word, conduct and character. And the words that came up over and over again, as I was researching stuff about behavior and etiquette and what women were told, but there is something for me, and who knows whether it's just cl clutching at um, straws, but there is something about saying when all else, when you feel completely powerless, then it is important to, to just make sure that, that you can be, look back and be happy with your conduct. It's not necessarily being a fabulous activist. Sometimes you're just getting through the day, but, you know, it can be about, you know, not leaving the world What's it like to be Bettina Arndt is what I'm thinking. What's right. it like to be one of those people who's just, the stuff they say is, I think, is cruel and mean and and, and just not going to make life better for anybody. They are the people that I just find completely, um, like that idea of being a troll, of saying stuff just to get the reaction. And it's like the bullies at school, right? 
I mean, I guess some of that is like power. And like, you know, if you really look at, you know, structures of society, like, you know, a bully at school, I'd want to know more about, you know, what home life he was going back to and whether he's just a hurt person who's hurting somebody else and all those sort of things. But the people you're talking about, the professional trolls, the trolling class, you know, reactionaries used to be people who had, you know, perhaps yeah, brilliant and bold ideas, whereas now to be a contrarian very much just means to say the opposite of the prevailing wisdom for clicks, right? Like it's a different thing to what it perhaps once was. Or am I even being like mythologizing what it once was probably? Yeah. It's a low bar though, isn't it? Not to be a horrible troll. Like I guess what I'm saying is at least that at least when you when you can control your own conduct, that is actually a, po- a very positive thing. I remember when my baby was little and I remember thinking if I compare myself as a mother to Courtney Love I'm going to feel a lot better about being a <laughs> because there was a news story that she I remember she was quoted as saying that it was educational for her mm. daughter when someone called the ambulance because she got mm. to know about the medical system it's so good yeah it's practical you know? <laughs> oh my god <laughs> so uh anyway Okay, so uh, what's your perfect day? So I'll ask you this in two ways. A perfect non-work day and a perfect work day. So give me the work day first. If like this is a day where, you know, you're going to work, what would be your perfect work day? Oh, it would be going into the National Library or the National Museum or a state library and getting some, having a lovely curator or archivist or librarian get something out of the archives in a box and put it in front of me and maybe no one's looked at it for 40 years or 100 years or maybe someone got it out last week and did a beautiful preservation job on it and and built it a custom box but for me that is the most glorious treasure hunt in the world sometimes it's a book and and we now have these catalogues where you can from home, you can look at all this amazing stuff. Like, you know, with um with this book, Annette Kellerman, the movie Mermaid, uh, was said to have the perfect figure. So I wanted to look at um, her an actual outfit of hers, which is held at the Powerhouse Museum. Um, so something like that, seeing an incredible, uh, you know, I because of the lockdown, I couldn't go to New South Wales and made my um, editor go, and take a photo of a furry bra that has been in the <laughs> state library uh, of New South Wales. So he's got a bad rep up there now. Um, but and then and then it would be working out how I can use that as an emblematic, or um, how I can write about that in a way that shows it to other people and says something about our history and who we are, or or who we used to be. Um, that for me in my you know as I get although that's the thing that really floats my my boat and I'd love to do more of that kind of stuff okay so that that's interesting to me is it like I mean a what's in there but is there something about the like the the library itself the environment the sense of going to the theater is it like watching a stand-up special at home like reading the stuff in your office at home versus going into the library or like is there a genuine difference to go in or can you get the same thrill from sitting at home no and and that's that's insightful that's exactly what it is partly 
um, especially when you go into a beautiful old building which has a sense of theatre, like the dome of the... Um, but sometimes you're in a crappy back room with a sort of plastic table and somebody <laughs> looking at you to make sure that, you know, you're going to look after that thing and, and they don't like your jokes about if you can set something on fire to see if it really <laughs> go on fire. Um, but for me, I think it's also about... Those, all of those things in those big institutions, are, they're amazing and they belong to all of us. Every one of us as Australians owns those things. Um, they belong to us and they tell stories about um, good and bad about our past. And it is like, it really is, you know, there are unboxing videos on YouTube. Mm. I wish they would, yeah. and they've started to do them a little bit um, from some of these institutions. Um, and I remember um, opening, well, you know, someone helping me to open one of those boxes. So it's the size of like a really large dining table and then taking off the lid and it's it's a taffeta dress, a beautiful cream um shiny dress with m m the most delicate beautiful embroidery and a big spaghetti stain down the front <laughs> like what's that story like so that makes me want to find out who wore it where why who donated it you know um, and 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 then and the other part the other so the other perfect part of that work day would be feeling like the writing is really flowing and you're entertaining yourself and that it's worthwhile it's fun writing about that thing or it's important writing about that thing. Maybe not important to the world but important to you or the thing that you're doing or trying to impart. And, I'm, and, and I've got this thing, a lot of people have this thing, but a lot of authors, anytime you hear an author say, and I discovered this in the archives, in a mm. catalogue, it was, it, it was inspected. It, it was accepted into the collection. Somebody wrote a description of it. Somebody digitized it. Yeah. Somebody, you know, put their gloves on and made sure that it was not going to disintegrate. Mm. And someone put it in a catalog where you found. I mean, sometimes you do find things in boxes and go like. When I was doing the research for this book, I found. I didn't find. I went to the National Library and held in my hand a palm-sized pistol that belonged to my great 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 grandmother in the 1890s wow. um, which is part of our racist history she had it because she was frightened of aboriginal people who my family had um displaced murdered who knows what really went on so part of this book is wanting to look at objects look at stories and say well what does this actually mean um and then and in the holster of this tiny gun my uncle terry who had given it to the national library said to me there's a bullet wrapped in tissue in the bottom of the holster and i held up the holster i was wearing gloves and <laughs> and the person from the library who was standing there and I, I i guess i did it quickly i picked up the holster and sort of squeezed it and the, and the bullet it wrapped in tissue came out into my other palm and this person who was the official person at the library went. <gasps> um, anyway, somebody else there probably knew and had already logged that there was. A, yes. um, I'm sure it's in the catalogue that there was a, a a bullet in there. But um, I mean, that's the that's the 
pinnacle of, you know, being able to just, for me, it was discovering it for the first time and feeling um, like it was important and something to investigate. Uh, you talked about something there that, uh, you know, we can explore as much or as little as you feel comfortable with, but it's just something that I think about a lot, which is, I mean, my generation, my family are fourth or whatever generation Australians, so like white Australians. So I imagine if I went back and did some research as well, there's probably, you know, going to be some unpleasant stories there to be found, you know, like, I mean, I, I haven't gone looking at this point in my life, but like, you know, you, we all understand what happened. So like, you know, chances are that it's, you know, there, there might be some pretty negative stories there. How do we as a country, and again, I don't expect you to solve this. I just would like your thoughts on this. Like, deal with what you're talking about, which is people going, well, of course, there's going to be, like, Australia was an invaded, like, people were here who owned this country, and then the British people came along and stole it from them. Like, we all know that happened. Like, and if you're white and Australian and you've been here for long enough, you know, you were some consequence of that, that, right? Like from that, how do we deal with, you know, Australia, the history of Australia, the white history of Australia, the, you know, the debates over black armband views and, you know, how it is that we should be reconciling with the First Nations people of this country. Do you have thoughts on that topic? I think the big picture of it is that we have to listen to what Aboriginal people are saying. And, and I think they're saying it well and beautifully and angrily and, in all sorts of ways. In the one of the things I do in the book is talk about how Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are artists, scholars, filmmakers, writers, journalists, all of them are uh, telling us stuff that we need to listen to about the history of this country, but also about the present. Um, and so one of the things I've tried to do is is point to those writers doing. And and the, one of the big themes in the book is. Uh, what is deemed domestic servitude. So that history of, you know, so our Prime Minister getting up and saying there was no slavery in this country, which is a lie. A lot of Aboriginal women, a lot of, um, a lot of, uh, there, there's stories, there's oral histories at the National Library, there's plays that have been written, all, all, all of it's there and we should look to Aboriginal people who are telling their lived experiences and their own histories. And on a smaller micro level for me, I um, was shocked at how much it, because my generation goes back seven, so to a convict ship in uh, 1799, and every one of the, the next, um, every generation since has been emblematic of some kind of exploitation or um, or ugliness that my family was culpable in. So I feel like I can acknowledge and tell that story and I want to do that because I think so so often we talk we tell ourselves these stories about plucky pioneer women doing emu stew and my goodness me they hoisted up their skirts and got on with things and we're not told that those very same women often had uh, Ni Vanuatan or other Pacific Islander or Aboriginal um, people who were enslaved that virtually or completely either had their wages stolen, were not paid wages, they were mistreated in all sorts of ways. Children were, were taken over generations. And if you go back and look at the records, it's all there. 
Um, but again, you know, those are th those stories are to be told by Aboriginal people, and I could only tell the story. I felt that it was important for me to tell the story, not dodge that and pretend that because I have been told the stories about my plucky pioneer relatives, you know, one of them invented Australian rules, one of them bought the first wool press, you know, um, women had 14 children, which is no small feat, but the whole story wasn't told. So I wanted to do that a little bit in this book, as well as having crazy pictures of corsets and, you know, ridiculous hats and, and, and the history of women not being allowed to have pockets. Um, because as always, there's funny stuff and ridiculous stuff and stuff that you have to think about the tone and you have to think about what to say. What is the story around pockets, by the way? Because I know I like it's one of those things that I understand. Good issue. Like I, I, I try to, you know, like Felicity Ward many years ago when I first started doing this show, one of the things that she challenged me to was like to consume more female-made art and music. Right? Like if you genuinely want to be like a, you know, an ally in a meaningful way, like one of just the really basic things you can do is just make sure that you're listening to as many women sing and speak and act and, you know, write things and whatever as you are men. And because you'll just suddenly have a very different view of the world if you just even that up, like just alone doing that, like can be revolutionary because of course these are the places where stories are being told you suddenly are hearing a whole bunch of different stories from different perspectives you suddenly go oh fuck pockets are a big deal pockets are coming up a lot <laughs> so what is the like what is the yeah the quick history behind pockets women have never been allowed to have proper pockets that fit stuff in them so right from Joseph Banks, the botanist who came on the Endeavour ship, his sister had special quilted petticoats made with giant pockets in them by a tailor so she could carry books and whatever else she wanted in her long voluminous skirts because women have been told by tailors and designers for years you can't have proper pockets, they'll bulge and, and ruin the line of your frock. Uh, women's clothes are more expensive but cheaper to produce often because the engineering to put pockets in is not done for women. Little girls' school uniforms don't have pockets, but boys do. So boys can carry a bit of string and some orange peel and, you know, a, a little note and a stone, and girls aren't supposed to carry anything. Um, women, are, The women's uh, pockets in women's jeans are not deep enough to put a phone in the front pocket, whereas men have proper usable pockets. Partly, lots of theories, right? Trying selling people more handbags, but the fact is, women have been asking for them and being refused pockets for literally centuries. And I've gone back and looked at the evidence of that and found these hilarious patents in the Australian archives, all by women. These strange devices for all these uh, multi-pocket overskirts and stuff that because they were they wanted them so yeah it's I mean, amazing that that is still going on and if you go if you look at hashtag pockets on twitter <laughs> you can just see women going off like a box of fireworks still saying and, and and telling each other that here's a dress with pockets you can get it at this shop you know yeah i mean it is it was one of those things that just makes me laugh not the issue but the fact oh, that like hilarious. you know when you it's a it's a blind spot 
until you know it's a thing because of course it's not my issue it's never even occurred to me everything that i've ever bought has pockets yeah. in it in fact the hoodie i'm wearing has a pocket in it like the shorts i'm wearing have two pockets like i've got yeah. four actually i've got i'm wearing six pockets right now and i'm barely dressed Cass. So- <laughs> you're up to pussy's bar with your pockets um but even when we ask for them and say we want pockets mm. they no, won't thank you sorry no. incredible anyway so yeah. Amazing. Okay. So, uh, you know, I asked some standard questions at the end of the show. So one of them is this, what do you think happens when we die? People remember us. That's it. We don't go any, anywhere, but people remember us. Again, coming back to, so you may as well examine your own character and conduct and be happy to go. Are you good at examining your own character and conduct? Do you feel like you uh, it can give an accurate assessment of like when you're at your best or not at your best, or is that something that you need external, like a, another set of eyes to go, Hey, Kaz, what's up? I think I'm a self-righteous pain in the ass mm. and it's much easier to criticize other people. And it's hard to find that balance between giving yourself a break and being kind to yourself and not being mean to other people, which makes you feel better about yourself going back to what you said about, bullies so maybe not maybe i'm not the best judge but but it's a little bit of a north star sometimes if things are really difficult um then just checking in with yourself i don't think i've ever used that phrase but (laughs) well he's a first a philosophy first that's cool always talking about checking in with herself (laughs) but yeah but i think i'm more anxious about it than at peace with it I'd say. Mm. I, I asked you before what your perfect work day was. I actually um, wanted to ask you also, but it was just such a lovely work day, what your perfect non-work day is. Oh. So no work. You're not, this is like, because for me, if I'm talking a perfect day and there's a reason I separate the two because I would jam work into my perfect day. I'm just that sort of personality if somebody asked me. But you're legislated not to be working on this perfect day. I'm so scared yeah. that I don't have an answer for this at all. It's it, it, I feel a little bit hornswoggled. I don't I think that's something I actually need to think about more. Probably involves something to do with the beach and nature but not getting sunburned, <laughs> I suspect. Um but, but that would be a close run thing with staying in bed the whole day and just reading and getting up for cups of tea and other snacks, mainly biscuit-based with things on top, which I always thought was the most, like my my ideal dinner is is artful things arranged on biscuits. Okay, so, well, yeah, so, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, right, so savoury biscuits, you're saying, not like sweet biscuits. Yeah, and then going... Going back to bed and looking at, you know, those constructions and still reading. I find it very hard to, to eat without reading when I'm alone. I don't quite see the point of that. If you've got a moment to, have, to eat something on your own, particularly in lockdown, but then as I'm saying that, I'm thinking that's me in the middle of a work day taking it. So I'm not even computing your idea of having a non-work day. It's interesting. I, I I, I've stopped uh, drinking. I haven't had a drink in like, you know, I don't know, like I probably had half a dozen, dozen drinks in the last 12 months. Like, you know, uh, so I realized that one of the things I'm missing out on is that that would be my recovery day. Like a little 
hangover would be the excuse to like stay in bed and read a book and eat some biscuits, right? But now that I'm not doing that, yeah. the idea of like, I could still do it. In fact, I've actually probably got more time to do it now in a better way, but it does feel incredibly indulgent when you're not hung. Like if there isn't an excuse, you're not feeling a bit poorly or whatever. You know what? I think that's uh, um, really interesting. And actually, I think what it is, is exactly that, a recovery mm. day from being busy and fraught and you know in that documentary about Joan Rivers and she she's like really frightened of a diary yeah. with nothing in it I crave a diary with nothing in it. even after lockdown you know I th I'm recharged by not going to a party <laughs> <laughs> whatever that verb is yeah no I get it like I mean now you actively can choose not to go to things whereas before it was just legislated that everybody couldn't go to things so this thrill of you know not they're going gonna stop asking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you care I mean you talked about the idea that you're remembered who do you care to be remembered by oh just my daughter and my friends yeah, I don't think I'll be remembered for my work for very long because so much of my work is, um, so many of my books are about information that will change and has changed. So my books for young girls, my books for young girls will be just as much of a historical relic that someone opens the box and looks at in a, in a future state library. And that's that's okay. That's fair enough, I reckon. On my uh, desk... I have a little, uh, it's as close as I have to an inspirational saying. Oh, by the way, we haven't formally asked if you have a life philosophy. We've talked about life philosophies a lot, but I do actually normally formally ask the question, is there anything that you have as a life philosophy that we haven't covered in the chat that we've already had? Yeah, it doesn't sound like much. It's not very elegantly phrased, but I think it is, I think it is be kind. And I, I'm sure I don't always do that. Maybe be kind and funny. <laughs> yeah i mean like sometimes you got to be a little mean to be funny that you know but it's all it's all in the right spirit that's what i like to tell people on my desk i have a little lump of uh, metal here it's as close as i have to an inspirational saying it says what would you attempt to do if you knew you could not fail i always explain that the way that i interpret that is i just use it for work and i i the thing the trap that i used to fall into was i think going how, what ingredients can I put in this that will make this thing successful? You know, like what is it that people want to hear me talk about rather than saying, what is it that I want to talk about? So now I imagine the project completely successful and go, well, if it was going to be completely successful, what would I like it to be? What would I like to, if I had to tour this show a thousand times, what would I like to be saying out there every night versus how can I, you know, do you, that's me. But that's not how you need to interpret it in any way. That's just what I use it for. But I will ask you the question. What would you attempt to do if you knew you could not fail? My mind is whirling about, don't you just re... Uh, don't you just adjust what your, ver what your definition of failure is? Like, if you know you could not fail is such a is such a alien notion to me because I feel like you'd find a way to consider it a failure <laughs> yeah 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 yeah. or not be good enough not be a hundred percent perfect mm. not that's not the perfect book that's not the perfect drawing that's not the perfect thing to say when someone insults you or whatever so all that makes me think about is it's that life has got to be about redefining what failure is and read and defining it out of possibility 
So whatever happens, even if something is a complete schmozzle, that you have learnt something or you won't do it again or it helped one person or it was good at the time that it happened and then it wasn't. I'm not very good at looking forward. I, I sort of can't, I can't even compute that bit of it. I can only compute the what thing would you like to do because that's what I've, I've got. I've got another book deal to write a book about menopause and that's going to drive me nuts. So I'm going to need something on the other side of that that is... So uh, I feel like you've given me all these nudges and things to think about, and I've completely failed to have an answer for that unless I redefine it as, well, it was an answer. There's no failure. Exactly. It was an answer. I, mean, I love that answer because and the answer that us like makes me think about the question more is always the best answer. In my opinion, I'm not really looking for answers. Like sometimes on this podcast, people come to me as if I'm like at the end, I'll go, oh, thank you. You fixed it. Yeah. No, I'm just, happy. I'm just happy to hear what people think. Final question, Kaz Cook. Your book is called You're Doing It Wrong. People should uh, absolutely read that in all the places that you can buy, read, download. Is there an audio book as well? Yes. And some of the words in it are very badly pronounced. Um, <laughs> and every heading in the book is a lie. So we had to find a way around how those all the headings were going to be read. And I'm not, I'm not going to tell you how we did that, but I'll tell you off air. Okay, great. Uh, so final question, Kaz Cook. I have a time machine. I can take you to any point in the future, any point in the past. Um, it is a round trip. You can observe your own life. You can give yourself some advice. You can ignore yourself completely and go to a different era, time, place. It does not matter. But all I ask is that you do something selfish, you know, that it's for you. You don't have to go back and, you know, murder baby Hitler or tell people about climate change or whatever it is that people. Oh, no, I, I know exactly yeah. what I want to do. I want to go to a party in New York in 1926 and Dorothy Parker's mm -hmm. there and Harpo Marx is there and Robert Benchley is there and all the writers from the New, the New Yorker of that era and an illustrator called Nisha McMean and they were all actually friends and they all had bathtub gin parties and raucous card games and um, swapped partners and were hilarious and, and um, sharp and wrote poetry and wrote books and wrote journalism. And I want to be not a fly on the wall, but a girl in a, in a beaded flapper outfit at that party. Yeah, that sounds like a great answer. Thank you very much for this, Kaz. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Will.